And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of the Black and Blue Pod. I am your host, Matt McLaughlin, joined alongside a very, a very prestigious writer. This man wrote a book that is on my Mount Rushmore of books. Mount Rushmore season is upon us. This is on my Mount Rushmore of sports books that turned me into a sports enthusiast, I guess. Writer of the victory season. He's got multiple books out as well, which we'll get into. So one, the only Rob Weintraub. Rob, thank you for coming on the show. Yes, the standing ovation. I can hear it in the background. Thank you. Right. So much. Our whole studio, <laughs> our studio audience is going ballistic. You just can't see it. Right. So, that. so how let's start at the beginning. What was your childhood like growing up and how did you get first get ex- into sports? I know we're going in the big questions, but how'd you first get into yeah. sports as a kid? Uh, mainly by watching him on TV, playing him in the, uh, you know, schoolyard and, uh, going to games. I grew up in suburban New York city, um, a place called Rye, New York, which is familiar to people in that area for the, uh, amusement park that's in the town, Rye Playland as seen in the movie big, perhaps you might know it. Um, but also, you know, close by, um, to both. Yankee Stadium and New York City, uh, Yankee Stadium being most important there. Uh, so I grew up a big Yankees fan. We played baseball all the time, uh, uh, you know, in the schoolyard along with the other sports. And I just really got into it. Uh, my dad was a, a sports fan, but he didn't really sort of pass it down in the classic fashion, I wouldn't say. Um, he was working a lot and then, um, you know, he, he was ill and, and then wound up, my parents wound up getting divorced. So uh, I really kind of brought it on myself. I, I've always just, I don't know, I thought the dramatic portions of sports were much more real than any other thing that you watch on TV, so-called quote-unquote dramas that were being uh, pushed at us on television, ha- held nothing to even your average uh, football or baseball game, uh, much less, you know, a playoff game or something of true intensity like that. And it just really captivated captivated me from a young age. Um both, you know, uh, playing. Obviously, I was the classic topped out in high school and realized I wasn't going to be a professional athlete. So <laughs> better stay in business and, and stay involved in sports in a different capacity. And that's how I wound up, you know, kind of setting a career path to be involved in sports, whether it was writing or in television uh, and, and, you know, staying just a fan, which is really the most important part. Uh, of it all, because if you're not still juiced by the action uh, on the field, then it's it's hard to really you know, make it a profession that you're that you care about uh, off the field. So I see a Bengals helmet behind you. Are you a Bengals fan from New York? How did this happen? <laughs> yes, uh, that's a great question that I've been asked a multitude of times over the years, and there is no easy answer. Had there been, I would have saved myself plenty of psychic pain over the years and become a Giants fan like everybody else where I grew up. Unfortunately, I, I guess when I was seven, six, really a pres- impressionable age, I, I happened to flip on uh, the TV and the Bengals were playing. I guess they must have been playing the Jets and uh, the Bengals. I don't know if they even won or lost, but uh, I was quite taken with the uniforms probably. And uh, through whatever alchemy goes on in, in a little kid's mind, I just sort of said, OK, that's my team. And uh, it's it's manifested itself in in hardcore fandom. Since then, obviously, this past season was uh, much better than most of what I've experienced uh, my adult life. But uh, it's it's been a wild ride, mostly a painful one. 
but yes, I, uh, I am one of the few, the proud, the Cincinnati fan. So I'm a New York fan and all the other sports, but the Bengals take precedence in professional football for better and largely for worse. As an Eagles fan, I sympathize with that. Other, <laughs> up until the past like few years, I've been riding a pretty yeah. high wave. And now I understand why my older relatives are all bitter and old and just don't buy into hope. Uh, but what do you th- what do you think of the Bengals white helmets that they just unveiled for this upcoming season? Yeah, they're sweet. Uh, you know, I mean, they're a, they're a alternative quote unquote helmet. So it's not like they're switching to it as a full time thing, which would be maybe a bridge too far. But for a couple of games, I, I think they're pretty, uh, pretty slick looking. The white tiger, you know, Joe Burrow pretty much can pull off any outfit, uniform, whatever he's wearing. So I don't have any doubt uh, that'll be uh, that'll be the rage, not only in Cincinnati, but hopefully uh, around the nation uh, when Joe rocks that white white helmet and the uh, uniforms that match and uh, puts up, you know, 450 yards on whoever they're playing that week and a couple of touchdowns. That will be nice. And uh, yeah, I, I think they're good. They're they're certainly unique and Bengal helmets tend to be that way, which is probably why I became a fan in the first place. No, there have been some great uniforms that I, I personally love. Obviously, the Cali Green jerseys are have a special place mm. in my heart. Uh, the the Houston Oilers throwbacks. Yeah, I hope the Titans bring those back at some point. Uh, but I, as a kid, that, that's better than like getting to like 18, 19 years old. And you're like, you know what? Screw it. I'm just going to switch to Bengals because why not? And it's like hopping on a bandwagon. Yeah. I have friends that are just hopping on like the Warriors fan bandwagon. And I'm like, do you just... That's just not allowed. That shouldn't be allowed. You should be excommunicated. Yeah, that's harsh. But yes, I agree uh, that once you pick your team and or the team picks you, which is generally how it works, um, that's your team for life. You know, I, I could be persuaded in the case of a team that perhaps leaves town uh, and then you're left without one. And Fair. And you pick and choose a new one, I suppose. But generally, yeah, to you know, wax and wane with the team's fortunes or to follow uh, a team because they have a particular star player like Steph Curry and then forget all about them once he retires. A little shallow. Not not a mark of a true sportsman, no question. You need to go through pain. Pain is being part of a sports fan because then it makes the highs so much greater. Absolutely correct, yes. Uh, if I had a podcast, and uh, perhaps I'll do one, that the entire theme of it would be the pain, most painful loss in your team's uh, particular history, and, and let's let's wallow in that for for some time before we move <laughs> on to the good the good days, which are few and far between. Exactly, but the good days are going on right now. But uh, let's get back let's get back to you. How did you okay. how did you start off as a, I know no writers don't like to talk about themselves, but how did you start off as a writer, and what were some of the you know the trials and tribulations of starting a career and trying to get people not get people but i guess spread the word of whatever you may be working on okay well first of all let me uh correct you on one point writers do like to talk about themselves you know it's just it's funny we're all human and uh as long as it's in a case like this where we can you know concentrate on the good parts and the the rise to qualified success uh, at least then sure we're happy to talk about it not necessarily the process or what you're working on at the moment but generally speaking writers will be happy more than happy in some cases to talk about themselves so don't worry about that uh well let's see i went to syracuse university which is a well-known communication school 
Uh, I knew from an early age, relatively early age, that I wanted to do that. As I said, I wanted to be involved in, in sports and, and communications. Mass communications was the way to go. Uh, you know, Marv Albert and Bob Costas and the fellow, the rest of the litany of Syracuse alums definitely had, had their sway on me. And I went there and it was a very good education for that particular uh, field. And I actually was a television producer at first and for the first sort of uh, section of my professional career. I worked at ESPN and I worked overseas and I worked in, in you name the event, I probably uh, worked on it in some capacity, Olympics, World Cup, Super Bowl, et cetera. Um, but I always wanted to write and I always wanted to write a book. And from a very young age, <laughs> I don't know, my mother always said that you have a book in you. Uh, I got to meet a, a great, well-known former uh, New York Times sports writer named Robert Lipsight when I was young. And he kind of has maintained, I, I managed to maintain a relationship over these years with him where he was always very encouraging and said, you know, if you really are pressed uh, and moved to write, don't turn a blind eye to it because, um, you know, a few people are and the people who are a good percentage of those people don't follow through and the world is deprived of what they have to say or what they might be able to, uh, to pass along. So I kind of took that to heart and um, I started writing really, um, I guess at the dawn of the internet age, I was living in Asia of all things, working in television. Uh, and there was a sort of new e-magazine that came out called Slate, which you are probably familiar with. It's still around, mostly in the podcast space now, ironically enough. Um, but, you know, they welcomed submissions from just about anybody. And because I was living in Asia, I was like, well, at least I can do it over the internet. That's cool. And they accepted my first piece and then a second. And I was writing about sports for them for some time. And that gave me the confidence to sort of I guess you'd say, uh, move into longer and more detailed uh, writing, as well as the fact that in television, um, you know, I, I had a family, uh, sports television in particular is often obviously nights, weekends, long, long hours, a lot of traveling uh, it was something I didn't necessarily want to keep on doing throughout my uh, adult life. And the idea that writing could counterbalance that, at least in part, uh, it was certainly very appealing to me, so I kind of tipped the scales more and more as the years went along toward the writing, uh, and then um, it was a winding path, but around 2009, basically I changed agents. Uh, I wound up with a literary agent who I had known uh, at Syracuse. He's actually the cousin of my uh, roommate and, and best friend at Syracuse, and we had known each other there and then kind of gone our separate ways. And one day my, my buddy calls me up and says, hey, you know, uh, remember my cousin Farley is his name. He said, uh, he's an agent now and he'd love to talk to you. And we hooked up and that's from, from our conversations came my first book, which was The House That Ruth Built. Very natural way to go for me, uh, baseball, New York Yankees, winning World Series, Yankee Stadium, it was all right in my wheelhouse. And really the only question was not sort of, was I able to summon the ability to write it, but was I able to you know, have the stamina and the uh, sort of stick-to-itiveness to write it? And uh, I guess when they gave me a contract to do it, that sort of put the burr up my fanny and said, okay, this is real, you got to do it. And uh, the rest kind of flowed from there, really. That's the short uh, sort of career path. I still work in television. I still counterbalance the two, 
as best as I can. And, you know, they both sort of wax and wane uh, with the tides, as we say, but uh, I, I do my best to, to keep my feet in, uh, firmly planted in both areas as much as possible. You lived in Asia? What was that like? I, I've never, <laughs> I haven't been, the farthest I've been is Chicago. That's it. Yeah, I threw that in there kind of out of nowhere, didn't I? Uh, humble yes, humble I brag a little bit. Yeah, a little bit, I guess. I mean, this is, uh, I lived in Hong Kong and in Sydney, uh, Australia, and uh, a little bit in Singapore too. Uh, went there, to, and this is television work, all of it. Um, I was working on a NFL football shows that we produced out of uh, Atlanta, where I still live now. I uh, came back here, um, and... Uh, the show had run for three years and then it got canceled. And I was sort of, what do I do next? And through context of that show, which aired in Europe, um, somebody had passed along to me that a television company was looking in Asia, was looking for somebody to move there and work on weekly television shows that they produce there and get to travel around Asia and profile athletes and cover games and that kind of stuff. And I was young and fancy free. And, uh, you know, I'd always wanted to, discover so to speak china in particular but asia in general sounded like a great opportunity and i didn't think about it very much and uh, i guess three weeks after the super bowl i was stepping off a plane in hong kong and uh, a whole new life ensued so yes i, I lived there for the greater part of uh, four and a half five years almost uh and went through a lot and you know there was you know <laughs> plenty of action happening there particularly germane to the our particular podcast hour was the fact that the internet was uh, you know, just dawning in its infancy. This is right around uh, 2000, you know, the, uh, the millennium changing over Y2K, as they say. And uh, that was when, you know, you could really, you didn't have to be in New York, particularly, or even in the United States, as it happens, or, you know, you could be anywhere to not just write, but also have your work seen and communicate easily with, with editors and, and other gatekeepers. Uh, it really obviously transformed, as you know, uh, pretty much everything about not just society uh, writ large, but in this case, writing. And uh, yes, yeah, so I was able to live in Asia and yet at the same time kind of write about American sports and, and, and occasionally uh, uh, Asian sports as well. And that's interesting to me because you've you have, along with many other veteran writers, have seen kind of three different eras of the way sports are covered, whether it's television, the Internet and now technically like social media has completely changed how sports are covered because now every one outlet throws up a start bench or cut graphic of like Joe Burrow, Josh Allen, and Justin Herbert. And like, that's considered sports coverage. And I get why they got to do those things, but it's different than the television or even the newspaper days before television. That being said, what is it like kind of seeing these three different almost revolutions in the way sports are covered and the way they're approached and how, different writers approach different or different, I guess, creators approach different topics. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I tend to look at it I, as a quasi historian, at least in sports, uh, for sure. Um, I tend to look at it in the broad sweep and it's not really anything new. I mean, we had the dawn of the radio age and we had the dawn of the mass produced magazine age, which led to an entirely different way of coverage. Uh, and then of course the early days of television, which completely revolutionized everything uh, you know, along the way, every other form of media has had to adapt and they've had to sort of make their peace with this new revolution. But at the same time, 
find a way to survive. And I, I think we're still seeing that in a lot of its ways. You still, you know, we're still watching television. At least I am. Uh, it's it's different, and it's not the four channels maybe that uh, that some of us grew up upon back in the back in the way back in the day. Um, but it's still viable, and it's adapted, and it's also sort of subsumed the way uh, these newer fangled media outlets like social media. And the internet, it's brought it in and, and used it in, a, in sort of a, co a companion to the way they cover sports. And I think you see that same thing will happen with social media for, to pick the newest form. Uh, you know, in 10 or 15 years, there'll be another revolution. Who's to say what it will be? But uh, I'm sure that social media doesn't necessarily go away <laughs> in a stretch. It's here to stay. And the question will be, how does it adapt? How do we use it? in a way that augments the other media instead of, you know, sort of being forced to pick or choose one space. I mean, I think that's the worst thing anyone can do as, as I've found and, you know, talking to you, somebody coming up, I know that you're interested in, in working in as many media and, and outlets as possible. I've tried to maintain, you know, throughout my career, uh, a, a foot or at least a toe, <laughs> as I said, in just about any uh, outlet, as long as, you know, you're getting paid for it, it, it's, it works, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's always, there's always a period of adjustment. It's always a little bit, oh, what am I going to do now? But usually, you know, they all have one thing in common, and that's the storyline is king. If you have a good story, if there's something interesting to tell, if there's something worth relating to another person, anything interesting that somebody or many people are going to find uh, that they need to, slow down at least for a minute and take in, then it really doesn't matter what the media is. You're going to find a way to get it to them. And it's just a matter of, you know, the just dressing it up in the, in the latest form of whatever the, the media flavor of the month happens to be. But, uh, you know, no matter what happens, we still see and write and read the printed word, which is supposed to have gone away, you know, decades ago, and it's still with us. So, uh, you know, if I, if I have to play advice giver, I would say, don't be afraid of, of new media, don't worry about how this or that is going to change the way things are covered. Uh, use it to augment and adapt, and you know, get your stories out there one way or another, and people will find you. Augment word of the day. I haven't heard that since the SAT. Um, <laughs> well, I'm a writer. I gotta, I gotta bring this stuff out. It's my big guns. Exactly, but that is kind of interesting. That I think people do tend to fall into that trap of following trends and trying to fit into a certain mold no matter what the medium is specifically but with you was was there a challenge in writing a book but writing it the way you wanted to do it but then a publisher wants something written differently were there ever any not challenges but I guess conflicts and trying to balance something like that well yeah I mean it's always a push-pull uh, no question. I wouldn't say that there was like a huge, uh, you know, argument about it. Like it wasn't like I was approaching these things from way on the field, uh, you know, to, to get a book even to that point, I'll give your audience sort of a inside peek of how this works. I mean, basically there's an agent who is your middleman and your representative and, and you work with your agent. As I said, his name is Farley. In my case, we work together to sort of shape what's called a proposal, which is basically the book in miniature, you know, a sort of 20% uh, meltdown of the, what you want to do. You don't have to hold to it, but that's, you know, that, that's basically what the publishing company then looks at and says, okay, this is something we can 
uh, market. This is something we will fit our other titles. This is something we can we would you know would fit in with our company basically. Uh, and you know there's a little bit more to it, but that's basically the upshot of it. So it's not like uh, you know it's not like the situation would ever develop where all of a sudden you turn in a book and they're like, wait a minute, what the hell is this? You know, <laughs> I mean, I guess that that has happened. I shouldn't say that that it's never uh, it's an impossibility, but generally speaking. They know my approach. They know the way I use phrases. They know what I'm looking for and what I want to write about. Um, I certainly wrote that first book, uh, The House the Ruth Built, which is about 1923 and the building of Yankee Stadium and the first Yankees championship and this kind of crossroads season uh, in not just Yankee history, but, but baseball history. But I wrote it from a modernist perspective. I wasn't, you know, when, when I, it, it, I used contemporary, you know, uh, articles and references and things like that. But I, I did it in sort of a way that it was almost commenting upon them rather than just presenting them as fact. Um, and, my, you know, the, my publishing company was certainly behind that um, in victory season, which you so kindly mentioned earlier as being one of your favorites. There was a similar approach there. We, we It took a while for us to work out sort of the exact nature of how we were going to tell that story in terms of the book's about ostensibly 1946, the year after World War II, the year when everybody was back home from the war and what baseball was like and what the nation was like. But at the same time, you have to tell all those stories about World War II to make it, you know, sort of give it a frame of reference. And the question became, you know, how much we were going to devote to that and in what order and then, you know, how much flashbacking we we're going to do, that kind of thing. Uh, and, you know, we, my editor and I went back and forth uh, over various items, but I wouldn't say there was ever a real conflict. I mean, you know, if the conflict stage really comes at the very beginning when you're trying to get them to publish and, you know, give you a, uh, an advance a contract, essentially, to write the book, that's where all the, con that's where the main conflict stage takes place. Now, my most recent book, which is called uh, The Divine Miss Marble, which was about a tennis playing uh, a woman tennis player who was at the top of the sport before World War II broke out. Her name is Alice Marble. Then she ostensibly, according to her, became a spy during World War II. Uh, in the course of that research, I discovered that much of what she claimed was not true, or at least was different than the way she presented it. And there was a lot of evidence uh, pointing to the fact that she either made up or uh, kind of sh you know, shaded various elements of her story. So in that case, that was one where, you know, conflict is, is too uh, severe a word maybe, but there was definitely a case where the publishing company, my editor, and I had to sort of, you know, re-rack in midstream and, and find a way to make it work so that I wasn't, because I was pretty angry at, at this woman, I have to admit, when I found I'd been duped by, uh, by her <laughs> memoir and all her uh, statements of, you know, her daring do uh, in World War II Europe, some of which were true, but uh, a lot of it wasn't. Um, so we had, you know, not battles, but, you know, kind of back and forth about tone and about language and about how you're going to approach this and whether or not to put myself into the book, which ultimately I did as a sort of quasi detective and, and, you know, achieving a sympathetic eye toward the achievements she did have rather than just being angry at the fact that she may have, you know, lied a little bit in her memoir, which is not unprecedented by any stretch. So anyway, that's a long-winded way of saying, yes, uh, there have been back and forth plenty of times, but for me anyway, the it's never been 
you know, a, a conflict between the publishing company and, uh, and myself. But as I say, you know, their, their idea of conflict is basically, we're not going to publish this, try something else. Yeah, there's been plenty of times where I've come up with ideas that I thought were great. And either my agent or the editor or the publishing company basically said, uh, try again. <laughs> so yeah. that's, that's where the conflict really arises. And you don't really have much of a conflict because when they say no, there, you, you don't have much, um, you don't have much opportunity to convince them otherwise. Seldom happens. So anyway, that's a peek inside the publishing window for anybody who's interested out there. Uh, I hope we enjoyed it. And for a book like Victory Season, when you're trying to condense an entire season of baseball, but also roughly five to six years of American history, maybe more than, into 400, 500 pages-ish, give or take. Like, what is that process like of just getting the idea out and then getting to the end result of this 500 piece that goes through this whole timeline? What is that process like for you? Yeah, well, it's, it can be difficult. Uh, it's, it's weird. The irony is the more of a, in this case, baseball fan you are, the more you want to write about the individual games and the players and you want to get into the nitty gritty. And yet that's sort of not what you want to do from a mass market or as much of a mass market as you can have perspective, because, you know, if you start writing about every single uh, Brooklyn Dodger game from 1946 and this happened in the seventh inning and this happened in the ninth, it's pretty tedious. And pretty soon most of your audience is going to, uh, throw the book into the corner and pick up something else. So it's really a way of balancing that, getting the important bits, the most important parts and figuring out what that is, who are the most important personalities and what's the most interesting aspects of their lives and presenting that. And then within that particular framework, you know, uh, you take a player, just Stan Musial, okay? All time great player from the Cardinals who played 1946 and you think all right well am i going to talk about what he really did in that season on a game-by-game basis or just sort of use and, and tell and, and paint a character sketch of him and then within that kind of dot in little bits about what he did during that season and how that was sort of em- emblematic of his entirety of his career and, and the person himself so it's really again it all goes back to story you know think to yourself what's what's when you're watching him baseball highlights you know you want to have a sort of a dramatic context to a particular play you know it's like you can admire a home run but if a home run in an 8-2 game is different than a home run in the bottom of the ninth of a tie game right you're sort of doing the same thing in in writing books about this you're picking out the best part the most dramatic part the stuff that will advance your story the best and you know there's a lot of editing and self-editing involved in that uh, and that's where the passion for your project and the love of writing and the love of history really shines through because if they, you know, it can get a little bit, maybe not tedious is not the right word, but it, you can get lost in the weeds pretty easily. And if you don't, uh, you know, really enjoy what you're doing, uh, and have your eye on the big picture the whole time, you can wind up getting lost. So that's really where that comes from. And by the victory season, I'd already done it once for the book about the Yankees, uh, and that really helped me uh, guide along um, because I had done it already. I knew and I had a shorthand. By that point, I could I could really uh, at a glance see what I could use and what I didn't need, and it made it much easier to go through and write. And you know, every book gets easier in that sense. The more you do anything, obviously, the more practice, the more reps you get in practice, uh, the better you're going to play. So. 
it's uh, it's the same with writing. Just, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, how do I become a writer? How do I, you know, get involved? How do I do a book? And I say, there's no substitute, obviously, for just doing it. You read a lot and you write a lot and you'll you'll find your voice and it'll come relatively naturally. You won't even notice that you're becoming a writer, quote unquote, it'll just happen. Yeah, and I think people kind of underestimate the exhausting part of writing a book and when you're i'm sure when you probably experience this i would imagine i've never written a book obviously but i'm sure when you're going through draft after draft making revision after revision after like two times i revise a two-page essay i want to submit it i'm done with it but i can't even imagine for a 400 page 500 page book and doing all types of edits and stuff like that did you, have you ever experienced that type of, I guess, burnout? That's kind of a buzzword now, but that type of burnout and really like question, I guess, a project that you were working on and saying, oh, do I really want to keep doing this and just keep pushing through? Of course, every writer deals with that. I mean, that's an automatic, um, you know, there's different levels of it and there's a certain amount of you get so sick of your own work and so sick of your own sort of the words that you put on the page as you say you just want to chuck it and do anything else um, yeah you're saying to yourself of, oh who's this dude shut up i'm tired yeah. of hearing this guy very much so yeah that happens um and again at the same time you're always chiseling away and you're never really fully satisfied and you want to have it and you want to keep doing it before it you know kind of goes out into the world uh, as I always say, you don't really finish a book. They just take it away from you and publish it, whether you're ready or not. Uh, and that winds up being the case. Sometimes I pull the books down off the shelf, you know, years later and my God, why the hell did I write that sentence? That was horrible. <laughs> or why did I go up on this tangent? Ridiculous. But, you know, at a certain point, you can just get up your own navel so far that you, uh, you know, it's self-defeating. So it's good that you have uh, a deadline and you have you know, you have an editor for all these things and he not only works on your narrative on what you give him, but he works on your psyche and your work progress if he's a good editor as well. And he'll help you. I've had an editor who's talked me off the ledge at, at various occasions, no question about it. And uh, again, the passion for what you're doing usually wins through. It's sort of, that's the acid test, you know, it's every writer comes to it. Uh, this is crap. Why am I doing this? Let me move on. And I'm never going to get 500 pages. I'm only on page 42. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. I think it helps in that when you do nonfiction, as I've done, a real help in a granular sense is that there's, you know, direct passages, quotes, people say things, and you can just directly cut and paste that into your into your narrative. And if you come across a, a passage that somebody wrote from a newspaper, uh, from 1946, you can just take that entirety of that passage and put it into your narrative and it's work and you're advancing your story, but you're not actually coming up with anything. You're not typing. You know? you're, you're just, you're just putting in what other people have said and wrote and it's going in and it helps you along just sort of from a mental standpoint. You're not constantly, Oh my God, I have to come up with something that's witty here, or, you know, I have to you know, get a good sentence here. That's going to tie these two passages together. It's kind of like the the building of a of a building, and there's sometimes you're really measuring and and being precise, and other times you're just hammering, you know, and it's kind of mindless work, and that that helps you uh, build the edifice along the way. Uh, having a little bit of mindless work is always good, as we know, 
And, uh, you know, little by little and day by day, if you, you just, you don't look at it as a 500 page project, you look at it as I'm gonna write, you know, a decent amount, even if that's two, two good paragraphs, I'm gonna get that done today. Just keep at it every day, you know, as much as you possibly can, even if it's for an hour and, uh, you know, the building grows and one day you'll have a skyscraper without even really realizing that you've been working on it all that time. Exactly. And what's cool about victory season to me is it kind of brings me back to a time when baseball players weren't viewed as like, how do I say this? And they weren't the coolest. Like there was a time there where baseball athletes were not the coolest athletes. Everyone wanted to be like a wide receiver or a hockey player. But back in the forties, Joe DiMaggio was an American icon. Like that, that's crazy. Now, what what are your thoughts on some of the more flashy baseball players like uh, Fernando Tatis Jr., Juan Soto? And is it kind of, for me at least, my generation is kind of bringing back that love of like a specific player. I mean, what are your thoughts now as a guy who's seen plenty of baseball games in his day? What are your thoughts on that as you know baseball tries to evolve and get more mainstream yeah i maybe i'm out of step uh, with my uh, quote-unquote older generation i i like i have always been a guy who wants some flair make it interesting you know i mean baseball's unwritten rules and uh you gotta you gotta grimace all the time and be like <laughs> joe dimaggio who never cracked a smile anywhere near the ballpark that kind of stuff you know yeah it's, it's obviously it's a different time because when joe dimaggio played baseball was the number one sport it was not contested in any real way by anything else except maybe boxing it was what everybody cared about and devoured religiously and uh you know you could already make the argument that if he had really let a lot of his personality come out he would have been devoured by the baseball hungry masses obviously it's a much different environment now baseball is uh, a distant third probably behind football and basketball and the more it can just be a marketable entity, uh, you know, and whether that means bat flips and guys like Tatis who are allowed to bring their personality right out into the field and, and miking up guys during games, which is awesome. Uh, the more of that, the better, obviously, just, just from a person who loves the sport and wants baseball to do as well as it can, uh, there's uh, everything of that is good. You always want to see that. And when people are, you know, grumble bunnies who are like, oh, you shouldn't have, you know, stared at his home run. We're going to hit him next time up. I mean, you know, come on, wh what are you doing here? I know you're, uh, you think you're the keeper of some unwritten code flame or whatever that's been burning for 150 years, but you're not. It's like we were talking about media, sports too. They got to evolve and keep up with, with the way the world turns. And uh, I think baseball for the most part realizes that. And I think, you know, your generation, so to speak, uh is more in tune and, and they've heard you in the uh in the howled halls of major league baseball headquarters and they're trying their best you know there's only a certain amount of uh, things you can do with the sport in general i mean you know there's sort of two arguments like we were talking about bat flipping and things like that are all great now what about when it comes to altering the very nature of the game putting a player at second base when the 10th inning starts you know or uh various other things they tried to do some of it was was pandemic related, obviously the, the seven inning uh, double headers, which was a tragic, uh, a tragic comedy, a farce. Uh, but you know now they have the DH and the National League and, and things like that that have messed that messes with the integrity of what the game has been throughout its history. 
that's a different argument. But in terms of just keeping up with what you were talking about in your original question, the style and what kids today, to use a cliche, what kids today prefer, there's no doubt. I, I'm all in favor of that. And the more the more guys can show their personality and we can get to embrace them and for who they are on the field and, and off even, uh, that's that's great. I'm all in favor of that. Yeah, like the the Field of Dreams game last season with Tim Anderson hitting that walk-off home run, that memory is iconic to me because Tim Anderson is just – he's loving it. He's showing his love for the game as he's going around the bases. And for me, I love trash talking. Like, and Tim Anderson <laughs> was definitely talking some trash as he's hitting home play, as he should. And also, for the old, the old guard that says – oh, you can't hit a home run past this inning when it's this score. It's like, we're competing. And if you want your players to compete, why would you shame them for not, for trying too hard? That's where the logic doesn't add up. Yeah, it's dumb. Uh, well, first, let me just go back to the Field of Dreams game. That was a horrible, horrible game because my Yankees were playing and the uh, Ah, uh, okay, okay. As, a, as a Phillies fan, it was great to see New York fans sad. <laughs> I hear you. Uh, if it had been against Boston, it would be uh, one of my truly iconic moments as, as well. Uh, yeah, but you're right, and it was great to great to see Anderson live live in the moment and and really embrace it and talk a lot. And you know, one thing when everybody talks about the thing about hitting home runs when you're up thirteen nothing or whatever, are you supposed to just ground out? I mean, what are you supposed to do? Like you know, everybody forgets, and in a lot of these cases, these players then go to arbitration at the end of the year to decide their salaries or they're becoming free agents. They have to get their contracts reworked. And that's of course all based on statistics and you don't get to go back and say, well, you know, in these couple at bats, we were already ahead by five runs. So I wasn't really trying. <laughs> these guys are all trying to get paid. I mean, that's what they're up there to do. The pitcher's getting paid too. I it's, it's idiotic. It's just, to me, it's just, it's not even real. It's just like sports radio trying to find a way to, drum up a little controversy during slow summer days really it's it, it, it's not even worth engaging to be honest no i totally in agreement but speaking of your yankees do you think this is the year do they finally get get back and finally capture a world series for the first time since Derek jeter was still a shortstop uh boy well you know i was just i just went to st louis met some friends and we saw them play uh at bush stadium didn't go so well. So uh, based on recent events, <laughs> I, I'm much less sanguine about it than I was a couple months ago. That's for sure. You know, injuries happen and it's sort of, especially lately, the case in, in baseball and in sports where the team that is looking like the favorite and might be the best team for the first few months of the season definitely is not when the uh, when it's winning time. Yeah, I'm here in Atlanta, as I said, and you can look no further than the Braves. I went to uh, when the Yankees came to Atlanta last August and kicked the Braves all over the field, there was no way you would have looked at those two teams and, and thought to yourself, wow, two months from now, the Braves are the one who, who are going to be the world champs and the Yankees will be long gone. And yet, you know, that's sports and that's why we love them. Uh, I didn't love that particular result from the Yankee perspective. And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm hopeful. I don't think that they're of championship material necessarily because of a few flaws in the team. But in a way, as I just alluded to, you know, going through a rough patch where they played sort of, you know, 50, 50, 500 ball for the last month plus now, 
uh, might be a good thing for the team. Get them refocused. They don't just mail it in until the playoffs start, and then all of a sudden they got to ratchet up their intensity and and find a way to match what they used to used to take for granted. So it's not, uh, you know, I, I am let's just say I'm guardedly optimistic, but you know, when you become a sports fan of a certain age as I am, you never really uh, are optimistic about your team doing well, much less winning the World Series. And uh, the worst thing you can do is talk about it or predict that it's going to happen. So uh-huh. I'll say that while the Yankees will be, you know, in the mix, obviously, uh, I remain, as always, a very conservative fan on that front. That's fair. And if I, every time I see Jimmy Rollins say that they're going to win in five games against the Yankees in 2009, I'm going to lose it on the Jay Leno show. Right. Never forget yeah, that. Uh, last little thing here. I do a rapid fire segment uh, called off the dome. It's like um, okay. 35 seconds to answer five quick questions. Sound good. Sounds great. Let's do it. All right. And the timer is starting. Is Derek Jeter overrated? Yes or no? No. Barry All Bonds, a hall of famer. Uh, yes, no doubt. Crocs. Yes or no. Crocs, uh, the shoe or the reptile? Uh, the shoe. I would say the shoe. Uh, my kids wear them religiously, so I got to say yes. I don't wear them particularly myself, but they definitely. Go to drink at a, at a restaurant. Uh, well, I don't really drink alcohol, so I'll stick with the unsweet tea. I'm, you know, I'm an old guy here. You, you, you kids do the wild stuff. Fair, smooth or crunchy peanut butter. Oh, crunchy all the way. Kidding? Oh no, no, no. Peanuts, what? baby, peanuts. No, why? No, I don't want to bite into a sandwich and and just feel a crunch when I want peanut butter. It's peanut butter. Butter is smooth by itself. What do I want crunch in there for? I don't need it. Wait, uh, the, the ghost of George Washington Carver, the inventor of 82 ways to use the peanut or whatever, uh, he's rolling over right now because that, that's you got to have as many peanuts as possible in your sandwich. That's where the protein pack comes from in your PB&J. But it's not butter. It's, it's just, it's, it's peanut. If you want to say peanut shell spread, sure, but it's not peanut butter. We'll agree to disagree. Fine. Fair. All right. Well, on that sour note, but, uh, but in all, all good. Thank you, Rob, so much. Uh, really appreciate it. Any social media, any projects that you want to plug for the listeners back home? Yeah. I would just say I, I'm always on Twitter and please come by. It's at Rob wine. That's R O B. W-E-I-N. And uh, if you go to Amazon, search my name, Robert Weintraub, and you'll see all my books and various things there. I shouldn't just say Amazon because uh, they're the conglomerate, but you can find them wherever books are sold. So uh, I've got four of them. Uh, every time somebody new discovers them, it's, it's a great treat for me. Um, so please do uh, check them out. I know that uh, we got a one rave review today from you, so uh, you can't go wrong there, right? If uh, if Matt says one of them's good, you got to know that all of them are, right? So thanks for exactly, for exactly. You can't go wrong. It's like it's like smooth peanut butter. You can't go wrong with it. <laughs> but that's just it's my like opinion. a corrupt. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Well, Rob, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Everyone, go check out Rob's books, and uh, can't thank you enough. No problem. I enjoyed it. Thanks to, to you, Matt. Really appreciate it. Of course. And everyone, please like, comment, subscribe. We need to uh, game the algorithm a little bit. So that would be nice with those subscriptions. Rob, if you could rate us five stars on podcasts and audio and subscribe on YouTube, that would be great. 
Wink, wink. I will do what I can for you, of course. Appreciate it, Rob. Uh, And everyone, thank you all for tuning in. And as always, have a great rest of your day.